Welcome to MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rogers, VP of Business Development at KeyTech. Each month, me and a KeyTecher are going to interview a MedTech leader and talk to them about the critical data-driven decisions they make in their programs. All right, everybody, welcome to the first official episode of MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rogers from KeyTech. Excited to be here. So what are we talking about? It's MedTech speed to data. What's the critical data that uh, startup companies and global companies developing new products, what data is most critical to their ventures early in development, late in development, and what key decisions are, are folks trying to make with this data? We're going to break it down with our guest, our first guest today, Steve Schaefer. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. All right. All right. Jake Copperthwaite, also co-host here today, uh, partner senior EE at KeyTech. Jake, thanks for joining the show. Hey, Andy. Hey, Steve. Excited to be on today. All right. So we're, before we get into it here, I'm going to, Steve, I'm going to make you blush a little bit. Uh, very, very excited to, uh, <laughs> to have you on the show. Uh, it's going to be a great interview. Um, so Steve, Steve's an executive with concentration on taking innovation from concept to commercialization at life science, medical device, and technology companies. Broad experience in all kinds of areas, sales, marketing, operations, business development, accounting, and financial management. Uh, I had to reread this a few times here, Steve, but you've completed over a, a billion dollars, that's with a B, in, in, tran in transactions, including over a quarter billion dollars raised for startup and growth companies. Uh, that's That's Legit, very excited uh, that you're on the show here. Currently, you're CEO of, uh, of CoolTech. We'll talk about that today in detail. But prior roles uh, included co-founding uh, medtech company CSA Medical uh, with the True Freeze product based in Le uh, Lexington, Massachusetts now, and also leading Armada Health, a multi-million dollar uh, healthcare advisory company. So Steve, again, thanks for joining. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, so let's let's get right into it. I'm very excited. So, so I want to ask you. This is your second medical device venture. Um, I'm, I know you've been exposed to others, but um, why why are you in the medical devices business? If you don't mind my asking, I, I don't mind at all. And in fact, it's it's personal. Um, the reason why I keep coming back to uh, medical device, which is a very difficult industry, is that I, I've seen firsthand the impact um, that innovation can bring uh, to improve people's lives, to even save people's lives. Uh, early on in my career, when I was a CPA, I was a partner in a CPA firm. One of my partners, um, you know, years later, developed esophageal cancer. And um, unfortunately, he died. Um, despite the fact that there were treatments available for him. So a couple things went wrong. One is he didn't go to the right type of doctor to properly diagnose him and give him the correct treatment plan. Um, and two, um, there were innovations that were just down the street that could have and most likely would have uh, completely cured him. Uh, but he, he died and he left you know two kids behind. It was really tragic. Um, but that story gets repeated all the time. Um, and I was actually the co-founder of a company that developed the treatment for that, um, which is, is now part of Steris Corporation. And uh, it's called True Freeze. And it, would, it could have ablated the disease tissue, allowed healthy tissue to regrow, and most likely 
uh, he'd be with us today. So it, it means a lot to me. Both my parents passed away uh, too early from cancer. Um, and so, you know, anything we can do, and there is a lot we can do with the, you know, the incredible inventions that are out there to bringing from, you know, concept to actually out there helping people. Uh, that, that's why I do it. Yeah, it's very impactful, Steve. I didn't know that background. So, you know, thanks for that that description. And yeah, every day, you know, we're working on products like this and it's both, you know, you have to catch these diseases early and you have to know how to treat them and you have to monitor them like this continuous cycle, prevent, detect, treat, monitor. So there's a lot of innovation out there in, in all those areas. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, CoolTech? Uh, what, what, tell us about the company, how long have you been there? Uh, just a kind of high level overview. Sure. So I've been involved um, since the inception, but full time uh, since the middle of 2020. So about a year and a half in my current role. And, um, you know, CoolTech has a platform technology uh, for evaporative cooling. And, you know, you'd think we're going to have an HVAC conversation, but actually there are, you know, profound medical applications for it. One is through a product called CoolStat, and that's to cool people who need to get cooled after a traumatic event. Uh, and the other is a pain management platform. Um, key product being developed is called MyHelper, and that's for migraine and other uh, pain and neurological disorders. Got it. So, so there's two, two products, and we're going to focus on each. Um, let's start with the, the CoolStat platform, the, the in-clinic product. Um, what is the status of that product? And um, can you talk about just maybe some of the high level features there? Sure. So CoolStat was developed uh, to provide a better way, a more cost effective way, a way without side effects to cool people after they've had a heart attack, a stroke, a seizure, uh, a traumatic brain injury. Any reason why they might develop a fever that can't be controlled, uh, which will probably kill them, uh, or uh, they need to be cooled in order to help preserve their brain and their heart and other vital organs. So CoolStat is different in that it uses simply dry room air, uh, no chemicals, no drugs, just dry room air to trigger an evaporative process. So it blows air through the nose, across the nasal turbinates, um, the body has to give energy for that liquid to change phases from liquid to gas, the evaporation, and that energy extraction pulls out heat and creates cooling. Just like if you'd get out of the shower on a hot summer day and a breeze blows across you, you feel cold, even though it's 90 degrees outside. It's the same principle. Uh, but we use it to systemically cool the body. And the really cool thing about it is that people don't shiver. N normally, any type of cooling, you go outside, forget your coat, it's 20 degrees out, you're, you're going to shiver, right? You're going to fight it. You want to bring your body back to a normal temperature. Um, and that shivering, it makes it intolerable. And so other cooling methods that use... You know, surface cooling, people shiver terribly and they have to paralyze them, um, which is not something that you want to have to do. Um, CoolStat doesn't trigger that response. So 
We're really excited because it's very cost-effective, extremely easy to use. It's the only portable option uh, in the market. Um, it is not cleared yet by the FDA, so it's still in studies only. Got it. So, so you, I think you answered my next question. It's still in studies here, and we'll, we'll talk about the, the clinical study and what, what key data is important. But I think it's worth asking, like, uh, and I know you joined the company a year and a half ago, but could you describe to our audience, like, um, if you're aware of this, like what, what early data was collected on this general therapy to say, hey, you know, this is worth an actual product. I mean, we know that, that there are um, targeted temperature management products out there that actively cool you know, externally and things like that. But you know, how did you kind of know that this was, this was a viable product? Yeah, so the initial data was, um, you know, animal model testing. We used a porcine model. Um, so we essentially, we cooled pigs uh, using the same method. And we measured the cooling efficiency. And we also measured the, um, the, the feedback, the biofeedback from the animals to determine that it was safe. And um, that was the most important thing. Uh, the other thing is that we matched it up with the, what the market opportunity and the market needs were. So you, you could prove that you could do it in an animal model. It's probably highly transferable to you know, other mammals and humans. Um, but does anyone care? <laughs> you know, should you commercialize something? Well, what worth does that have to the healthcare industry? And so when those two match up, hey, this is something that's needed. There's a potential for a compelling advantage. And the early preclinical work is showing great results. That's when it makes sense to move to the next stage. And everything has to go through stages and prove its worth through each stage. So the next step was you know, early feasibility and safety testing um, with a prototype before the device is actually available. And then you develop the device or something close to what might be the commercial version. And then you move it into more advanced clinical testing designed to get clearance and to produce the evidence that will be required for adoption of it, you know, once it gets cleared. Yeah. So um, I want to dig into the animal study just a little bit more here real quick. So you're claiming that um, uh, the therapy effectively cools, right? So in a, in a, uh, in a, in a pig study, right? Like what, what, obviously you're collecting temperatures at various parts of the body, whatever, or of the pig. And what, what did the data, what were you looking for specifically to say, yes, this, this will work or might work in humans? Specifically, we were looking for a rate of cooling and we were looking at different parts of the body, how it cooled. Uh, did it just cool locally? Was it systemic? Um, we were looking at the flow rate. How much air do you have to blow through? How many liters per minute are required? And what is the efficiency of that cooling? If it takes two days to cool somebody one degree, that's not going to work. So we were looking at the efficiency of the cooling, the flow rate, because the amount of flow has to be tolerable and has to be practical to, to deliver. So those are the main endpoints. Okay, so you're showing feasibility on a bench 
Now, clearly you need to do a, a trial, right? Because there wasn't a, a predicate device. Can you, can you describe to the audience what your regulatory pathway is for the CoolStat platform? Yeah, I mean, pretty much even if there is a predicate, you have to do trials to show equivalency at a minimum. Um, so what we needed to do, because there was no predicate, um, was probably to do a little bit larger of a study than you'd otherwise have to do, because the methodology of the cooling was, was completely different. So we set up a multi-center study um, that had an escalation to it. So the first thing we wanted to do is cool people, get them to a certain target temperature, which was normal temperature or normothermia within four hours, and then maintain that temperature for eight hours and make sure that it worked and it was safe. So we did that for the first 10 subjects. And since that worked well, we moved into the next phase, which was doing the same thing, but then cooling them for 24 hours. And the device has a closed loop system. So you basically set a desired temperature endpoint and it will induce that temperature and maintain that temperature. The system controls will do that. So that worked well. Um, however, when we went and looked at the device data, we realized we were getting good results, but it was suboptimal. That there was a potential to change the patient interface to make it more efficient, um, to make it more robust, to make it even easier to implement. And so we made a major shift. Um, we paused the study, we went back to the FDA, we said, here's the data. It worked, it was safe, um, but it can be better. Uh, so we wanna change it. And when we changed it, we went back and we did a dose escalation. So we started at an even lower flow rate and then when we proved safety for the first three subjects, we moved it up to a higher flow rate and now we're in our final flow rate and it has worked incredibly well. Um, and we have three more subjects to complete the study. Oh, that's great. I mean, it seems like, you know, trial design is, is, a, is a science in and of itself and you're learning. And, and I think most of the uh, guests on, on this podcast are going to tell stories of pivoting or improving or changing, you know, their, their study along the way. Um, I, I do want to get into, um, obviously, your, your product development, you know, process and, and specifically, you know, so we're going to state the obvious, the critical data for your venture is proving efficacy in the clinic. And so you needed a, a, a clinical trial device. Um, so is this clinical trial device your commercial device or, or not? Uh, or, or can you describe the differences between what you're using in clinic, and maybe that was by design, and what uh, you, know, you ultimately will be, will be launching with? Uh, great question. Um, yeah, you always want to start with the end in mind. So understanding what the future commercial product requirements are as best you can early on is important. Now, there may be some features and functionality that you feel are non-essential to prove the basic tenets of your device. And they may cost a lot of money to implement. So you may decide in your trial device that it may not be as sleek, it may not be as slick, it may not have all the bells and whistles that you eventually want to have to commercialize, but it gets the job done 
and it's faster to get it done. It's cheaper to get it done. Um, so that's normally the case. And even when you get a commercial, there's normal evolution and iterations of it as you go forward. Uh, but I think we did a pretty thorough job of getting it to the point where it could be the commercial device, um, especially with the pivot we made within that study. We went back to our product development partner, KeyTech. They help us engineer the new interface to reconfigure and validate the device and the controls and software. Um, and so we've essentially kind of moved to what a commercial device should be within the study period. And uh, I, you know, it was, it was cost effective and it allows us to go, you know, immediately post clearance into commercialization. Got it. No, that's, that's great. I mean, ideally, yeah, you're doing your trial uh, with your commercial device. So I'm glad you're glad you're there. Um, so now that we, uh, we talked a little bit about the, the device, let's talk a little bit more about, you know, the clinical data. So you mentioned four hours, eight hours, 10 subjects, 24 hours. Um, you know, how were you collecting the temperature data on the human? And, you know, and how did you determine, you know, the size of your trial and that that data was sufficient enough to, to you know, for the study? Yeah. So, um, it's a little bit different with such an objective measurement as temperature. Um, there's validated temperature monitoring probes uh, and software to store it that's commonly used in the hospital. And we just piggyback into that. Um, so it's not like an outcome study where you're saying, okay, because we cooled them, how many people improved their mortality? Um, it's, it's not like that at all. So the number of subjects you need is rather small. Um, and it all depends on how consistent your results are. If they're all over the place, um, then that's an issue. You're gonna need a larger sample size and you're probably going to need a control. Um, with something objective like temperature management, I mean, there's really, you, you either lower their temperature or you didn't having a randomized controlled trial really doesn't make sense because it's such an objective measurement. So we, uh, you know, you always work with a biostatistician um, and, you know, especially in a randomized con controlled trial, it's a completely different story. I mean, you're, you're going to look at what effect size you think you will have, um, what difference there'll be between the control group, What's the placebo effect within that control group? What's the expected efficacy in the treatment arms? And they do their power analysis and they figure out, you know, for a certain confidence interval, you need this big of a study. Uh, for ours, it, for temperature management, it hasn't, you know, hasn't been that complex. So we basically picked a practical number that the, we thought the FDA would agree is sufficient. Got it. Yeah, so it wasn't to to uh to involve there in the analysis so so um the devices are in the field you know how many are in the field or how many are in the uh in the trial i, I should say and you know what infrastructure did you have to put in place uh you know to support those those devices we have three centers each center has two devices a primary and a backup and we had to do a whole lot of work uh leaning heavily on our development partner 
to uh, create those devices, to monitor those devices, to make changes to devices when we you know, made the amendment. Um, so it's it's a it's a lot of work. Uh, we also look at every every uh, every subject that's enrolled and treated. We look at the device data right afterwards. So every second, the device is storing the performance of pretty much everything, from what the temperature is, the flow rates, the pressure, the patient temperature, all that's recorded. And so we analyze that to see if there are any, any issues. Like, for example, we had a subject where um, the staff accidentally turned the machine off for a period of time. And we could see- That's that. not good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got it uh, yeah so so i guess steve you mentioned that you're fortunate enough to have a relatively small sample size um but st still i'm sure it's a lot of effort um I, I guess my question would be uh even with a smaller sample size how do you get access to patients like it's not like you could just walk into a hospital with a you know new device and ask uh, the clinicians to use it so could you take us through how you find patients and get access to them sure so for this study patient selection is um is highly concentrated uh, they're all uh, unconscious they're all on breathing machines they're in the neuro icu um, they're very easy to find um, they have to meet rigid inclusion and exclusion criteria so you have to screen hundreds of subjects to get down to the very few that might get consented. And then you have to have the hospital's uh, clinical research staff get that consent. And since the patients are unconscious, it has to come from a legal authorized representative. So you have to get what's called an LAR um, to get them into the study. And not everybody consents to it. You know, that's not always the first thing on their mind. Um, when their loved ones you know, on a ventilator or other life um, support device. So, um, so the staff comes through, um, they explain the study, the risks and benefits, um, and potential benefits, I should say. Uh, they consent them and uh, enroll them in the study. And for this type of study, it takes a long time if a center enrolls a subject a month, that's fantastic. So uh, Steve, I got to ask, the, the last couple of years have been tough. Uh, the COVID pandemic, how did that impact your enrollment? Yeah, it's been dreadful in, in many ways. Um, the human toll on people, um, you know, all the, the death, the healthcare workers um, exhausted, the staff shortages, uh, the, the potential for contagion, having an aerosol generating um, procedure, uh, like using Coolstat, it's blowing air through a patient's nose, uh, adds another element. So obviously no one with COVID should be uh, in the study. And so it's made it incredibly difficult, uh, even access to the centers. I mean, normally for a clinical study, your team would be in there shoulder to shoulder um, looking for opportunities to enroll patients and there'd be a physical presence within the hospital. Not, not during COVID, couldn't come anywhere near the building. 
so it has made it more challenging. Sure. Yeah. It sounds like additional logistical challenges. Um, I guess the next thing I'm interested in is ju just the process of handling the data. So, you know, how is it collect collected? Um, how is it stored? And then how is it reviewed? Um, you, you know, where does it go once you collect it? Yeah, great question. So it starts out being recorded on predetermined what are called CRFs. So they're, they're forms that tie to the protocol, um, what data it to be gathered and how it's to be gathered is all you know, pre-specified. So it actually starts out on paper and then it is entered into an electronic data capture uh, software system that and a database that's been built and validated. We use a, uh, a partner called MedNet on that and then that data is aggregated, uh, is validated. And we also, in this study, have the luxury of the device data as well. So we can match up what the device said happened to what the human said happened uh, when they recorded it off their, um, their devices. So it's, it's a good way to make sure that there's consistency in the data. Sure, makes sense. So, so how soon can you see the data? Are you looking at it, you know, daily or weekly? Uh, you know, when are you able to get your eyes on it? Yeah, so we can see it usually within 24 hours and we look as soon as it comes in. <laughs> There's no reason not to uh, in this case. You know, it's not a blinded study. There's no, you know, there's no randomization. Um, so you, you really want to see what happened as soon as possible. And if there are any issues, you want to address them, you know, before the next patient gets enrolled. So it might have been the training of the staff and how to administer the therapy. Maybe there was something that didn't work as well as you wanted. You can see that in the data. You can take corrective action. So we, we, we look right away. Plus we're curious because we want to see how well it worked or human. Yeah, what do you do if, if the data doesn't look like you expect it to um, in a trial? Yeah, so safety is paramount. So you're always going to look for any potential safety issues and address them appropriately. Um, and if they're safety issues, you're going to, you're going to follow the procedures for that. Fortunately, we haven't had those issues. So it's all about performance. And did it work on every patient? No. Um, did we see some reasons why? Yes. Have we corrected most of them? Yeah, I'd say we corrected all of them. Um, and on some subjects, it'll work better than others. Someone who's 500 pounds, it's a lot more to cool than someone who's 120 pounds. So then you start to understand some of the dynamics of, you know, subject variability and you, you, know, you can start to formulate how you might um, be able to market this in the future, what instructions you'll give, what the labeling will look like. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of rich, you know, interesting things uh, that can be learned. When you're looking at the data beyond safety, is there kind of a, a go, no go threshold where, you know, if after some period of time, the results aren't looking so good, you might stop, stop the study and redirect things. Yeah, absolutely. I, you could say, um, you know, if it were the case that it's ineffective and it's, it's not worth going forward and you can just stop a study, 
doesn't have to be for safety reasons. You just may not merit going any further. Uh, you may find that it's suboptimal, but there's a way to correct that, which we did. Um, and so, you know, it all depends on what endpoint you think is commercially viable um, and whether it's worth marching forward or not. And I, and I, quite frankly, I thought we had really good results, but just not like incredibly compelling over what was out in the market. It might have been better, but when we made the change, now I think we have something that's you know a night and day improvement. You know, beyond improved versatility, um, I, I think that now we're going to be able to prove some pretty big advantages. Yeah, and this is the, with the added irrigation feature. Well, we basically we switched from this is very technical, so listen carefully. From blowing air through two nostrils at the same time. They're just blowing air through one nostril. So now the air can go in one nostril and out the other, kind of like a, a neti pot flow pattern. Before it had to go down the back of the throat and out the mouth. So what happens if the patient closes their mouth? Well, the pressure will rise, the flow will be reduced by the device, and they won't get the dose that they need. Now it works 100% every time in terms of delivering the desired flow. One thing, and this might be a tough question, um, I know clinical trials are heavily regulated as, as they should be, um, but but is there any data that you wish you could collect, but you're just not able to because of regulatory constraints? Yeah, absolutely, there's, there's a lot. I, the most significant is um, we had a desire to study beginning cooling out of the hospital a point of first response. You know, now it takes four, six, eight hours before people start to get cooled. And it's potentially too late. I mean, every minute is precious, much less hours. And so our vision, and it still is, was to be able to, because we're the only portable option, is to be able to put it on the ambulance, uh, equip the paramedics with it. But we weren't able to do that because, um, you know, we weren't able to get a community consent because the patients are dead or unconscious at a minimum, um, they can't get consent. And so in order to start a therapy right away, you have to have what's called community consent. And they didn't think we were ready to do that until we proved the safety and efficacy within the hospital. So I would love oh, to do that study. Not now. One day. <laughs> One day. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay. So, I mean, I feel, I feel like we've touched on what data is important, how you're collecting it. Um, I guess when when will your trial be completed? You know, you know, you don't have many patients, but are you close? We only have three more to go. So, yes, we are close. Um, I'm going to have to go get my crystal ball to tell you how long it will take to get those three. Uh, I hope we'll be done in April, uh, possibly sooner. All right. So, Steve, um, let's go into the, the lightning round here. Let's have a little fun. All right. <laughs> um, you know, we'll focus on the, the CoolStat platform for now. Um, but, all right. So you've, you've had success uh, developing products, getting them through trials and on the market. Um, so what advice do you have for 
entrepreneurs uh, that are that are fundraising right now, um, you know, trying to get traction, showing showing these early concepts, you know, without clinical data. What advice do you have for for these startup uh, entrepreneurs to get where where you are now in the driver's seat towards the end of a trial, looking at the commercialization? It's tough out there uh, in med tech to get funding, to get early funding is even harder. And the traditional venture capital firm who would come in at a very early stage, like a concept stage, preclinical, they don't, they really don't do that anymore. So you, you're forced to source your funds from private investors, angels, small funds, maybe state run funds and high net worth individuals. Uh, the other source is grants, very important. So that kind of angel money and grant money is your target when you're at that stage. Uh, and there you wanna have something that people can identify with. Maybe they have a personal connection to the desire to bring a solution for the disease or, or the need for a diagnostic. Um, you've gotta do your homework. You, you've gotta be able to lay out you know, the plan what it's going to take to get there, what it's going to look like when you get there, the business model will look like, you know, you've got to go through all the standard business plan stuff. Um, and the more primary and secondary research you have to back up your story, the better. Yeah. I was, um, I was listening to a, a MedTech podcast, not this one, but a different one. Um, and you know, the, one of the, uh, I think it was a kind of a news report and, you know, reimbursement, I mean, which is not surprising here, but, you know, that, that the reimbursement um, projections is one of the most important sort of indicators for success. So can you talk a little bit about reimbursement on uh, for targeted temperature management for, for Cooltech? Um, yeah, how it's going to get paid for is critical. Um, there is the possibility that you can create new reimbursement. Um, and even if you get a code, doesn't mean you're going to get coverage by commercial insurers. So you're going to end up in, in the end, you have to have the data to support uh, that it's cost effective. Um, so there's not just efficacy, it's cost effective. It makes sense. Um, so for temperature management, these patients are in intensive care. They're admitted. They fall under DRGs. Um, it's a package deal uh, for care for them. And so the reimbursement the hospital gets to care for that patient is the reimbursement. And so how does CoolStat doesn't get specifically covered or won't, uh, but it'll be part of the costs they already incur and it will allow them to reduce those costs. What is the rough cost equation on on this product is is it that you're reducing the number of days in an ICU potentially and, and of course saving the life but um, you know is it is it as simple as reducing the time in the ICU that that really is like the value you're communicating well that's a huge value um, when someone spikes a fever that can't be controlled by medication um, and is raging out of control they have to reduce it. So it's something that they're compelled to do. Now, how they do it today um, 
is use other devices, which are much more costly. So there's the cost of the device itself, you know, A versus B. And if ours is a third of theirs, then that's, that's the savings. Mm -hmm. um, there's also the lack of um, shivering as a side effect, which they need all these costly medications for. So the reduction of, uh, of those pharmaceuticals. And lastly would be if you, if you do anything to lessen their stay, then that's very helpful as well. So if they don't have to be as deeply sedated and paralyzed um, to avoid the shivering, then it stands to reason that they will be out of the ICU faster, which is big bucks. We don't have the data to support that yet, but um, I think it's pretty logical uh, conclusion. Got it. Got it. That's for another trial, I suppose. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so um, you know, we are. Uh, it, you know, there are a lot of companies that um, their leaders they're confident in their R and D team. Either they have a, an internal team or they're working with outside uh, product development firms and manufacturers. Um, and so now, you know, they're like you. It sounds like they're shifting their attention to the commercial stage. So um, we're still in the lightning round. It's a very, very slow lightning round here, but let's, let's keep going. Uh, what, oh, yeah, what, what, <laughs> what are you doing to prepare to, to shift from a uh, preclinical, pre-commercial to now a commercial, potentially a commercial organization? What, what advice, what are you doing? And maybe what advice do you have, given that this isn't your first rodeo, uh, to prepare for a commercial company? Yeah, frankly, we're not doing anything right now. Um, we foresee the sale to be very targeted. There's only like 140 hospitals that even take care of patients like this. So we don't think we're gonna need a big infrastructure. Uh, for people preparing, it, it's all about how the sale is going to be made um, and what process you'll have to go through. So if you're selling a million dollar laser, and it's got to go through a whole different, you know, capital acquisition process. The people you would need to sell that are very different. They have a different background. It might be a sale to a physician. It might be a sale to a nurse um, who's right on the front line. Uh, could be a sale to a, you know, acute care center. It's, it all depends on how that eventual sale process will be made. That determines the type of infrastructure and team that you need to put together. Yeah. So, so another uh, question for you: Like, what what industry groups or uh, you know resources have you tapped into to really help um, you get to where you are today with your startup medical device company? Uh, I would say that the NIH has been a great partner, uh, both for temperature management and for pain management. We've done large SBIR grants. Um, cooperative research with academic institutions. We work locally with Johns Hopkins and University of Maryland and MedStar, um, and they've been great partners. So those are the main organizations. You know, as you go forward, uh, there are a lot of like nursing associations that might be relevant uh, that need to know about your product that can help you. Um, you know, if you're helping them, they want to spread the word about things that uh, will help them do their job better. All right. I, th I think that concludes our, uh, our lightning round, Steve. So thanks for, for answering all our questions. Um, and I think this concludes our, our first episode 
of uh, MedTech Speed to Data, Key Tech Podcast. So, everybody, thanks for, for joining. Steve, thanks for coming on the, on the episode. Jake, great, insightful questions uh, related to the trial and the, and the devices. So, uh, that's it. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to MedTech Speed to Data, a Key Tech Podcast. Join us each month for more ways to get the right data faster to inform critical decisions. Find additional resources on our website, keytechinc.com. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review on iTunes whenever you listen. Thanks.